listening to sermons from South Point Locust Grove, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. It's good to see y'all here today, and just to go back and capture a little bit of what we were looking at last week in Luke 22, verses 1 to 23, Jesus basically did an overview of salvation history. He connected the dots between Exodus 12 and the Passover, where a lamb was killed as a representative of sinful people, and the blood of that lamb was put on the doorpost, and the death angel that was passing through for the firstborn passed over those houses, and the firstborn lived, not because of the perfection or righteousness of the people, but because of the death of the lamb. And we said last week, John in John 129 said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus took Exodus 12 at that Passover meal with his disciples, and he ran it all the way forward and connected the dots of the Passover to he himself at this particular time in human history being the very Passover Lamb that is going to die now in a few hours as he's talking with them last week. And he is going to take away the sin of the world. Jesus is going to die so that we can be saved. It's interesting, though, that when we come to verse 24 of chapter 22, that the disciples didn't seem to get any of that. They didn't get the solemnity of the moment. They didn't get the, the historicity of it all to say, this is a significant moment. This is Jesus is fixing to leave us. And when we come to verse 24, the text of Scripture tells us that they're in this debate. And I think the text that we've read this morning is going to break down in three ways, three scenes that I want you to look at this morning. Um, The text is going to start out broadly with the disciples debating. And here's what they're debating. Who's the greatest? Who's the most influential? Who's the number one guy? Who's the goat? Right? I think the conclusion of their conversation was that Peter was the goat. Then we're going to see Jesus move from this group of guys to addressing Peter in verse number 31 through verse 34. And he's going to tell Peter about how in scene two, Satan wants you. He's going to sift you as sweet. And Jesus says, I pray for you. And Peter says, no way. I'm going to be with you all the way to the end and I will die for you. You're wrong, Jesus. He said Jesus was wrong on a couple of other occasions and it didn't uh, sift out too well. Then we're going to go, we switched over now, over to verse 54 to 62, because we wanted you to see just how that plays out with with Peter denying Jesus in that process. But we're not going to stop there with his failure, with him weeping bitterly. We're going to go to John 21, and we're going to see where Jesus, after the resurrection, comes out to the guys who have been fishing on the shore. And I just love, I just love Jesus. Jesus doesn't walk out with an entourage. He doesn't have on a a, a robe. He's not being overtly religious. He's like, hey, y'all, did you catch anything? How's it going? Right? That's Jesus. And, And so we see Jesus bring them over, and he walks Peter through a process to affirm, hey, remember what I told you a few days ago? Now, here's what I'm here to tell you right now. I want to use you, and I want you to follow me. And then we're going to see a beautiful passage in 
uh, 1 Peter chapter 5, where Peter talks about shepherding the flock of God and the impact of all of this on his life. So uh, the first thing I want you to see in scene one this morning is this, though. Jesus exposes the disciples' unbiblical worldview. Jesus on leadership. Jesus on what it means to be a leader in the world among the Gentiles, among the unregenerate, and Jesus in the kingdom. There is this stark contrast between these two kinds of leaders. And so Jesus begins talking. Jesus exposes the disciples' unbiblical worldview on leadership. The first thing we see is the insensitivity of the disciples to the teaching of Jesus and their insensitivity to the spiritual moment, and their insensitivity to the historical moment, and all they can think about is themselves. All they can think about is which one of us is the greatest. And so the text tells us in verse 24 that a dispute arose. And the word dispute could be translated as a love of dispute, a love of contention, a love of debate, an eagerness to contend. He touches on the fact that there is this human tendency to dispute or debate or argue with the end goal of somebody being the winner. With the end goal of the person who argues the best or debates the best being the one that is acknowledged as the one who is superior. So they were disputing, and if you look at the text, a dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded. The word regarded means to be thought, means to be perceived. It means, it means to, seems to be or is assumed to be or is the opinion of the group that this person has the reputation for being the greatest. And I would say the word greatest could be translated as the most Influential. So they're arguing about who is going to be regarded by them as the greatest. Now, uh, we love those conversations about the GOAT. I love basketball. I love to watch a baseball game. Aren't the Braves doing well? But you can't turn on any sports channel with the questions of being about who's the GOAT? Who's the GOAT? Who's the GOAT? I don't care who the GOAT is. I really don't. I don't care if Tom Brady's the GOAT. I don't care if Michael Jordan's the GOAT. I would just like to see some guys running up and down the court and let me watch a basket scored or a home run hit without worrying about who's the GOAT. But this is what these guys were doing. This is where ESPN gets it from. This passage, who's the GOAT? Peter probably won the debate. He got most of the votes. After all, his name was Rock as in Rocky or as in rock star. And he's always mentioned first and he always speaks first and he has great theologically sound answers. Thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. He was in the inner circle, the big three, the favored disciples. He alone walked on water with Jesus. He was there at the Mount of Transfiguration. And if you were to ask Theophilus who this book was written to, who he would believe to be the greatest, he would say, certainly it is that great disciple, Peter. So who is the greatest? Not unlike arguments that we hear among immature people, right? My dad is better than your dad. My dad can beat up your dad. And Jesus responds to it, and he responds to it beautifully. He responds to their immaturity and to their insensitivity. And what he exposes in his response among the 12 is their desire for recognition. What Jesus exposes is an authoritative and undeniable comparison between the worldview of the unregenerate 
the kingdom of this world, and his kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. Now, let us, let us just go ahead and, and be certain about some things this morning. Make no mistake, heaven's relational principles and values are in diametric opposition to the world's relational principles and values. Make no mistake that the world defines leadership one way, Jesus defines it in a completely different way. And we cannot sanitize the world's principles of importance and success and leadership simply by making our goals biblical or Christian. We need to understand that. At the very core, the leadership of Jesus is not even on the same galaxy as the leadership of the world. If you desire to control and determine outcomes, you are just like the Gentiles. If you desire to be respected and looked up to and seen as large and in charge or mega, who is the greatest? You are just like the Gentiles. If you have to prove yourself to be the man in every conversation and argument and discussion and have your way and be looked, to, looked up to and followed by your peers for your leadership, you are just like the Gentiles. Let us make no mistake about that. Those of us who are regenerate and in Christ should think of leadership differently, not only in the corporate world and in the church, but in the home. So how do the Gentiles lead? And Jesus, Jesus makes it clear. You can see it here in the text. The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority are over them are called benefactors. Now, he mentions several words here that we need to pay attention to. First of all, the Gentiles think of leadership politically. They think in terms of kings. They think in terms of people who rule. They think in terms of position and power and wealth. And these kings exercise the lordship. They exercise the rights over. They lord over. They have power over and the word lordship would initially be thought of as power over property. In other words, it is a dehumanizing leadership. It is the exercise of supremacy so that I can cause everyone to cooperate with me so that everybody will go along with what I want. He uses the term authority, the power to demand subservience. I am in authority, so you serve me. He also uses the word benefactors. In other words, the, the kings who are in authority uh, occasionally exercise some form of benevolence, not great benevolence, but a little eking out of benevolence so that the people that are under them would then praise that king and say, you are amazing. That's the way the Gentile leadership system works. By the way, that's how our political system works. A lot of folks are praising whatever government form they like. They're Democrats, they're Republicans because of what they're doing for them. When, by the way, the government wouldn't have any money to operate off of if they weren't taking it from us in the form of taxes and unjustly so at that. But we don't think anything about it. We're so thankful for a stimulus check. Thank you, government, for giving that to us. Isn't whatever president that is in office giving us money an amazing person? And that's the way this power works. Somebody that's going to give somebody a little something so that they can be considered a benefactor and have a good reputation. So this is Gentile leadership. The reality is that churches operate on the same basis of leadership as that authoritarian leadership, autocratic 
leadership, controlling leadership, leadership that is demeaning. I had a man one time say to me, if the preacher tells me to burn the church down, he didn't say, I wasn't a pastor. I was just a kid. He said, if a preacher says to me, burn the church down, I'm going to ask him, where are the matches? That's not a biblical form of leadership. That's a Gentile form of leadership. And so Jesus wants to identify this worldly form of leadership where there is this desire for power and control and authority and recognition and praise and a love for praise and admiration and appreciation and approval. But Jesus makes a bold contrasting statement. He says this right there clearly in the text. He says, but not so with you. There is no place for this kind of leadership in the kingdom of heaven. This is in diametrical opposition to the worldview of heaven. This is an unregenerate perspective. Life is not about importance. In fact, none of us is important when we compare ourselves to God. And life is not about convincing others that we are important or significant, not trying to impress others with our status or our titles or our degrees or the type of job that we have or the neighborhood that we live in or the style of house or, or the importance of our job or our appearance or our beauty or skills or the memberships that we are a part of. We do all of these things, it seems, many times not to serve the will of God and his glory, but to give ourselves status so that people will recognize us. That is how the Gentiles lead, and Jesus said, that's not the way. My kingdom operates. So how does Jesus instruct us to lead? And how did Jesus, the perfect leader, lead by example? He gives it to us here in the text. First of all, he says the greater is to become as the youngest. And what did he mean? The youngest are the less privileged. The younger defer to the older. The younger take If you take the younger person's place in the daily and common events and circumstances of life, you will do the difficult task. You will let others go first. You will listen rather than talking all the time. You will seek out the ignored and the neglected rather than seeking to be the center of attention. The the role of the younger, if you are going to be uh, uh, exalted or a leader in the kingdom of Christ. When I was growing up, now, this is going to sound abusive. This is going to offend some of y'all. But when I was growing up and we went to Mima's house, and Mima had a bunch of kids, and there were a bunch of grandkids, and when we went to Mima's house, now, don't, don't, don't get mad at me, but the adults ate first. Anybody ever been a part of any kind of terrible abuse like that where the adults ate first and the kids ate last? Now, it makes sense. You ever watch kids go through the feeding line? Watch what they put on their plate and watch what they throw in the trash. Right? They'll, have a, they'll walk out with a plate and about three-fourths of it goes in the trash can. Right? And that makes sense. It, it, it also makes sense that there is this respect factor. And I'll be honest with you. I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to go to meddling right now. What doesn't make sense to me is when you're fixing to go somewhere to get something to eat, you ask your kids that are three years old what they want to eat. They don't, they, don't need to be, they don't need to be telling you where to, a three-year-old doesn't need to be telling you where to go eat. They ain't got no money. They can't drive. They just need to sit back in the car seat, keep their mouth shut, and whatever's put in front of them when you get to the restaurant, just eat it or not. Right? But, but, but today we've empowered our kids. I mean, they're like, I didn't want that. 
I wanted ketchup. And I'm just like, I got grandkids. <laughs> I got grandkids. I'm just like, it's okay, honey. Just calm down. I'll get you a new plate and all new food. What brand of ketchup would you like? You know? And, you know, macaroni flying across the room. I don't eat broccoli! He's not talking about that kind of kid. All right? He's talking about a culture where kids didn't have privileges. And he says, you don't, you don't act like the greater. He says, the greater will become as the youngest. In fact, he gives us a very clear description in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only on his own interest, but also on the interest of others. And he goes on to say, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, who died, who gave up his life, who didn't say, I've got rights, I'm a leader, I'm the greatest leader. He was the greatest leader. He had every right. He was king of kings and lord of lords. All authority had been given to him, but he came to die and laid on his life. That's how Jesus led. That's how we should lead. The greater becomes as the youngest. And the leader, he says in the text, as one who serves. So we become as the youngest doing the most menial, subservient task that we can find to do with great joy. But we also have this mindset that says, no, I'm not in charge. I just want to serve. I just want to have a servant's Heart. And Jesus asked this question. He said, who's the greater? The one who is reclining at table or the one who is serving the ones that are reclining at table? Obviously, the one who is reclining at table and being served is the greater. But Jesus is the one who is up serving those who are reclining at table. Jesus is the one in John 13 who is bringing the basin, who is taking off his outer garments, who is wrapping himself in a towel. And Jesus, the Son of God, the creator of the world, is bowing down before these men who had dirt and mud and grime and toenail fungus and dried out heels that needed to be scaled with a file. And Jesus bends down and he's washing their feet so gent gently, so loving, so kind as a servant. The leader is the one who serves. The example is right here in front of you. Let me just give you some general statements about that that may apply to us. Listen carefully. We do not relate or connect to other human beings in hierarchical order in order to get things done. Our relationships are not about getting things done. If we're just trying to check boxes on a to-do list, the Gentile, of, the Gentile version of relating will do. Let us be kings and let us be servants. We relate or connect to other human beings not to get things done, but to get close. But to get close. We are connected to each other, and his immediate reference point is the disciples who were, who were dividing themselves up on the basis of who is the greatest so that they could then designate everyone as their servant. We are connected to each other in order to love one another well. We are connected to each other in order to put heaven's relational beauty on display. Some pragmatic person is going to say, well, how are you going to get anything done that way? 
Everybody's just loving each other. You will get more done when we understand the objective of our relating is closeness and loving one another and putting heaven's relational beauty on display than we will by going to the Gentile version where we've got a bunch of kings and a bunch of servants. When we take the posture of a child and when we have the attitude of a servant and when we're willing to serve one another and the point of all of that is our proximity to one another relationally and our interaction between one another lovingly so that we put the gospel of Jesus Christ on display before the world, more will get done through that kind of relationship than if we need somebody who acts like a Gentile king. We don't connect to take a spot on a ladder of importance. We aren't connected for the sake of pecking order. And don't we love that? We are not connected so that we can exalt leaders and identify servants. We are connected in order to grow closer to each other and to love one another well so that we can put heaven's relational beauty on display. We hear a lot about leadership and if the truth be known, we are practicing Gentile leadership. And then we use Scripture to justify Gentile leadership principles that end up being self-exalting, power-grabbing, and others-controlling leadership. But Jesus is not impressed. What do you mean by leading your family? What do you mean? Being in charge? Being the man, making sure that when you show up, they know that the king just got home. What do you mean by that? If you mean anything other than taking the posture of a child and being a servant of your family, then you don't mean what Jesus means about leading your family. Right? What, what do you mean by leading your children? What do you mean by leading at work? What a great opportunity to put the gospel on display. The leadership that Jesus is advocating is a humble servant first, foot washing, waiting on tables leadership. In this, in this teaching in particular, Jesus is setting his disciples up to lead the church after his resurrection when the Holy Spirit comes and dwells among us. So that's scene one. Jesus is dealing with the disciples. And, and a concluding statement, our greatest value and achievement is not in being important or in being a leader, but in being a servant. Our greatest value and achievement is not in being important or in being a leader, but in being a servant. Let me just say two things. Number one, every one of us in this room should be a servant in some form or fashion. I would encourage you to join a serve team, but joining a serve team doesn't make you a servant. They just put your name on a list. We'd love to have more names on the list, but I would encourage you to check your heart and make sure you've got the heart of a servant. But also, let me just say this. If you take the posture of a child and if you relegate yourself to being a servant and you live in that with joy, people are going to look at you who have a Gentile mentality and they're going to think you're weak. And that's okay. That's okay. We don't have to be thought of as being strong. So that's, that's scene one. Scene one is, is Jesus exposing the disciples' unbiblical worldview. Secondly, in scene two, Jesus exposes Peter's misplaced self 
confidence. We see it in verses 31 to 34, and then we're going to go to actually what Jesus is predicting in 31 to 34, and then what Peter experienced according to what Jesus said in verses 54 to 62. And just a few things that I'd like to say about that as we look at it. Jesus is taking his lessons on leadership to the micro level. To the one who was the capable, natural-born leader who had been, a, uh, been the man for the past three years. He was always in the right place at the right time. Peter was the star student, and Jesus drops the microscope down on this hard-headed, unteachable, filled with pride, first among all of the disciples, and he begins to have a conversation with them. Go to verse 31. He's talked to the, to the disciples. Now he's going to talk to Simon, the one who got the votes. The one who won the election. Who's the greatest? Simon. That's projection. I don't have any proof of that. But it just makes sense to me when we look at all of Scripture and see that. Jesus addresses Simon. Simon, Simon, behold. Jesus calls Simon by his pre-conversion name. Simon was the most, in the first century, the most popular name for a Jewish boy in Judea. The word Simon means to hear, it means to be heard, it means reputation. Simon was a man who people wanted to listen to. Simon was a man who had a reputation as a leader. Notice Jesus didn't call him Peter in Matthew chapter 16. He said, I'm going to call you Peter from now on. I'm giving you a new name. I'm giving you a Christian name, a name that represents your new nature. He didn't call him Rock. He didn't call him Rocky. He called him Simon. He uses his unregenerate name to go alongside his unregenerate value system. He uses it two times. Simon, Simon. You know when somebody says your name twice, they're trying to get your attention. They probably don't want to tell you how amazing you are. They probably want to give you some warning. They want to tell you something that's very important. Simon, Simon. Behold, Simon, Simon, you need to hear this. Simon, Simon, don't miss this. Simon, Simon, I want to warn you. Listen to me, dear son. Warnings are always the outpouring of the grace of God. Don't bristle at a warning. Don't bristle at a warning. Simon bristled at the warning. Simon, not so fast, not so proud, not so assured, not so figured out, not so squared away. That'll never happen to me. I'll never do that. I'll never be unfaithful to my wife. I'll I'll never drink too much alcohol. I'll never I'll never use drugs. I'll never I'll never I'll never. That'll never happen to me. Not so fast, Simon. Secondly, not only is Jesus calling by his pre-conversion name, but Jesus reveals the plan of the enemy. Jesus makes it short. He says, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Let's, let's, let's stop there for a minute. Satan, let us be aware that evil is always hunting us and that Peter in this instance is in Satan's crosshairs and you may be in his crosshairs as well. And he's coming saying Satan has demanded. Satan is coming saying that and he's earnestly begging. Satan is requesting the handing over of Peter from the power of Jesus to the power of Satan. Do you get that? Would you let go of Peter? Satan is telling Jesus. He's requesting. He's demanding. I want him. Let me add him. Let me add him, kind of like Job chapter 1, right? Have you considered Job? 
Let me, let me add him, Jesus. Let me, let, me just, let me just mess him up. Remove your protecting hand from him and let me add him. He said, I want to sift him like wheat. You know, some of you don't know what a sifter is. Have you ever seen Mima sift flour? It's a little can without a bottom, without a top, that's got a, a wire mesh in it that's kind of, kind of, uh, is that concave? And it's got a little thing on the side, and you put the wheat in there, and you turn it, and it just sifts the wheat, and it makes it a lot finer so that Mima can make some pastry. You ever seen Mima take the flour and, and all the different ingredients and roll that pastry out on the table and then slice it up and put it in the pot, and you got chicken and pastry? Right? Some, y'all don't know what I'm talking about. This is just too young of a crowd. You sift that flour. Satan wants to take you and he wants to put you in the sifter and he wants to shake you up. He wants to violently shake you. Satan wants to get a hold of you, Peter, and he wants to create this inner turmoil that will bring you to the point of defection from the faith. You, the influential leader. You, the impetuous and the spontaneous one. You, the bold and passionate one. You, with the great power and potential. You, with all of the influence. He wants you. Satan looks at you and says, you're a dead ringer. I want you. You've got talent, young man, and I want to destroy you. You've got kingdom potential, and I want to destroy you. And he wants to grab a hold of you and shake you up and shake you loose and destroy your faith. And your connection and your heart for God and his kingdom. And he will use your biblical knowledge. He will use your natural leadership ability. He will use your spiritual commitment that Peter's going to be sharing with us here in a minute. He will use your great faith. And in a split second, Satan will get right in the middle of all that is admirable in your life. And sink his claws into your heart and shake you violently. And shake you loose from Jesus. And you will end up as a shipwreck like Alexander and Hymenaeus in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. Jesus reveals the plan of the enemy. But secondly, Jesus reveals our only hope when Satan comes a-sifting. You see, when Satan comes a-sifting, the only hope we have is if Jesus Christ is praying for us. Jesus says, but Satan desires to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you. The word pray literally means Jesus is saying that the deep longing of my heart is that your faith will not fail. Did you get that? The deep longing of the heart of Jesus was not that Peter, not that Peter wouldn't deny him. Right? The deep longing of Jesus' heart was not that he wouldn't maybe commit some heinous sin, the deep longing of Jesus' heart was that his faith would not fail. That is important in understanding the entire story. You can touch him. You can take him. You can shake him up. But, but you better leave a, sliv, a sliv, sliver of faith. As you get old, you can't talk plain no more. But leave a, a sliver of faith. Our hope in sifting is the intercession of Jesus Christ, the deep desire of Jesus Christ, that your faith may not fail, come to an end, die out. Here's what he's saying to him. A severe blow is coming to your heart 
and to your mind. And that severe blow could potentially undo all that you have gained over the past three years. Your pride will be pummeled. Your faith will be shaken. You will be overcome with shame. You will even doubt me, Jesus is saying, to the point of quitting. And you will even quit, or you will try to. But I have prayed for you. I'm not praying for your mind. I'm not praying for all of the tricks Satan is going to play on your mind. I'm not, play, I'm not praying for your heart. I'm not praying for your emotions. I'm not praying for your circumstances. I'm allowing all of that. I'm allowing you to go through everything he is going to put you through. I'm praying that your faith will not fail. And he goes on to tell him, look, he's going to sift you a sweet. I prayed for you. You're going to recover. You're going to turn back. You're going to repent. You're going to be restored. There is going to be relational rupture. There is going to be brokenness. You're going to be convinced that I'm done with you and that I don't ever want to see you again. But there's going to be relational recovery. And I am confident that this massive, shameful, despicable... Here's what Jesus said. I am confident that this massive, shameful, despicable failure on your part is the very thing that affords you the capacity to be a source of strength to your brothers moving forward. In other words, your failure, your denial of me, your betrayal of me, with all the things that the accuser is going to use to beat you down and shut you up, but I, the very object of your denial, I'm telling you that I have planned for your failure to be the very thing that propels you to greater usefulness and influence. So Jesus reveals that the only hope for Peter is the prayer of Jesus. Peter can't see it. Goes back to his Gentile value system, his leadership value system. I am strong. I am determined. I have a great reputation. I have a track record. I was just voted by the disciples as the mega disciple, as the greatest. I'm too big to fail. You will see, Jesus. I'm going to go, and I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to die. Jesus gives him a memorable marker. Look, if you will, at the text. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times that you know me. And Peter forgot that. Went in one ear, went out the other. Ain't never going to have. No way, no how, not to me. And then we come to verse 54. So we've gone from the big picture, scene one, where Jesus is addressing the issue generally among the disciples. Scene two, where Jesus is addressing the issue uh, with Peter specifically about uh, leadership style and his confidence and having the worldview of the Gentiles. And as he's addressed that, generally now we go to the very thing that Jesus has predicted was going to happen to him. They, they seized Jesus. They led him away. Peter is following at a distance. That's never a good sign. He doesn't really want to be identified with Jesus. So we see things beginning to crack they kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down, and Peter sat down among them. And a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man was also with him, but he denied it. And somebody else came, and he denied it. And somebody else came, and he denied it. I, I, I'm trying to enter into what Peter might be experiencing at that point. You see, the reality is 
Neurobiology would tell us that the brain can operate at, at seven times the speed of speech. In other words, there were probably five, six, or seven different conversations going on in Peter's mind at this moment while he's sitting here in this group. I would imagine that, that beads of sweat are dropping, <laughs> dropping off of his forehead in this cool Middle, Middle Eastern night. I, I would imagine that his hands are beginning uh, to shake. I would imagine that the three years of his experience with Jesus are passing before his eyes. I would imagine that his conscience is being engaged and being struck by everything that is said and everything that he feels and everything that he thinks and all the possibilities of the reactions that he's going to give to these accusations. What am I going to do? What am I going to say? What if they say this? What if I say this? And if I say this, then what are they going to say? And if they say this, what am I going to say? All, all just before he could take a breath, he's thinking all of these thoughts. What is Jesus going to think? What does it mean about my faith? What am I going to do? What am I going to do? be okay just deny him doesn't mean anything just words just deny him that'll get you off the hook the enemy comes with a solution to the problem to the problem of standing with Jesus to the problem of identifying with Jesus and he denies him not once not twice I guess Lionel Richie Got this concept for his song. Once, twice, three times a lady. Not once, not twice, but three times. And every time he said it, it got easier. But every time he heard himself say it, he had to be saying, what did I just say? What am I doing? And then the rooster crowed. And then the look from afar, the look of Jesus no words were spoken, but volumes were communicated. Peter sitting here all of a sudden looks, and when he looks afar off, he sees Jesus, and Jesus turns and looks at him. Must have crushed his spirit. Perhaps he saw the look of grace and mercy and love. And it all comes together in Peter's mind. And he just takes out the white flag, and he surrenders, as it were, to the sifting that Satan is putting through. Just some questions to help us apply the text this morning. Are you maybe a little too confident when it comes to how you will react to difficulty or temptation? Think about it. Are you just maybe a little too confident? Because Peter certainly was, and he's hanging out with Jesus. And if you want to talk about who's the number one out of the 12, it was Peter. He is the man. Resolute. Take a stand? Got his theology squared away? Have you ever denied Jesus? If you have, you probably wouldn't be here because if you did, somebody would say that you've committed blasphemy or you are lost or you can't be saved now. That's not how Jesus reacted. Have you ever been sifted by Satan? Have you ever just been shaken violently by Satan? 
Do you look down on people who fail or who waver in their faith? Are you trigger happy when it comes to church discipline? Wouldn't this be a perfect place for church discipline? Because Jesus said, he that is not with me is against me. He that gathers not with me scatters abroad. Whosoever will deny me before men, I will deny before my Father which is in heaven. Are you arrogant and self-confident, especially when you see people like Simon fail? Do you love to hear bad news about popular people when they fail? Oh, I knew something wasn't right. Do you lead like the Gentiles or do you lead like the Son of God? What do you, what do you see when you see someone in the sifter of Satan, right? What do you see and what, what did Jesus see when he saw this great apostle in Satan's sifter. I'll ask you one more question. Has anyone ever offended or denied or betrayed you? You ever had a friend to offend you, to deny you, to betray you? Have you ever had a spouse, a fellow believer? somebody here hey let me ask you a question when somebody offended you when somebody betrayed you when somebody denied you did you just leave them there did you just write them off did you just write them off there's no place there's no place in the kingdom of heaven now if you're a king and everybody else is a servant and a servant just ain't getting it done write them off but we're about relating to one another. Jesus did not write this guy off. We move to the third scene. Go to John 21, if you will. I, I, will, I will hasten, whatever that means. John 21, just, just the, the backstory story on it. Um, Simon Peter says, I'm going fishing. They're out there fishing. They're, they're like, okay, we're done with this Jesus stuff. We're done with this disciple stuff. We're done with this apostle stuff. We're done with this kingdom stuff. What do we know? We know that Jesus died. That's what we know. We know that I failed. And because he died and I failed and I let him down, I'm going back to what I do know. I'm going to go back to be Simon Simon. He put, put out the Simon Simon Fisherman Company. They're out fishing and they don't catch anything. And Jesus walks up on the beach. Hey, fellas, did you catch anything? No, we ain't caught a thing. Well, hey, throw your net over on the other side of the boat. Somebody says, guys, that's Jesus. That's Jesus. Peter, impetuous, spontaneous, jumps out of the boat, and he runs to Jesus. You see, Jesus reveals his heart for those who can't seem to get it right. That's the third thing in our outline. And that's good news to me. Um, I can't seem to get it right. I don't know about you. I know in my heart and in my mind I can't seem to get it right, and I'm oftentimes reminded by others that I can't seem to get it right. And the conclusion is that I just can't seem to get it right. What does Jesus do to people who just can't seem to get it right? I've got good news for you. 
He didn't leave him in Satan's sifter. He didn't rebuke him or call him out. He didn't hold a grudge or try to get even. He didn't shame him. How dare you deny me after all that you've seen and after all that I've done for you? He didn't strip him of his calling or title. He didn't suspend him or put him on probation. He didn't say it's going to take me a while to get over this. He didn't even make him publicly confess this terrible, terrible sin. What did Jesus do? Jesus relentlessly pursued him. Jesus showed up in Peter's pain and in his doubt and in his obstinance and in his anger and in his contempt and in his shame and in his rebellion. He's out here on this boat and that represents the contempt that is in his heart for himself and for how he spent the last three years in the mess that he thinks he is. And Jesus comes right out to the middle of where he was, just like Satan jumped right in the middle of his heart, Jesus comes out right to where he is and relentlessly pursues him in all that is swirling around in his heart that is putrid. Secondly, he lovingly reveals himself to him. Jesus crushed the barrier that Satan had built and that Peter believed existed. Jesus walks out, knocks down that barrier, and says, come on, come on, guys. I got some bacon and eggs over here. I mean, it wasn't bacon and eggs. It was fish. But 2022, middle Georgia or north Georgia, bacon and eggs just seems to sound a little better than fish for breakfast. I don't know about you. He welcomed him into fellowship over a meal without barriers, without restriction, without rebuke, with joy. Jesus Christ was so glad that Peter was there. Such love, such mercy, such grace. And he challenged him. He said, Peter, let me show you your heart. And he begins to ask him these questions in John 21. You can see it beginning in verse 15. Jesus makes it clear. He says, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he says that three times. He finally comes to the end and he tells him in verse 19. First of all, he tells him how he's going to die. A unique kind of death. He tells him that the assertion that you made that was fueled by your pride is now going to come true because your heart has been changed and you certainly will follow me to death and you will die a unique death. But he said, until then, follow me. So Jesus challenged him. Jesus called him. I want you. I have a plan for you. Jesus restored him. He is recovered And then Jesus says, follow me. Now, how did that flesh itself out? It fleshed itself out in Acts chapter 2, not too many days hence, where this very guy that denied Jesus stood up on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 and verse number 14, and he preached the first message of the early church. That's how it fleshed out. I I love 1 Peter, and I'm going to read this and and just say a couple of things, and, and we'll be done. I love 1 Peter chapter 5. I read it this morning, and it it just says everything that we've been saying here. Listen to this. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker of the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God. How do you relate to the flock of God? It's a shepherd. What is a shepherd? Somebody important? A shepherd, a businessman? A shepherd, somebody fancy? 
Somebody driving a, 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 a Lamborghini on TV with a, a, no, a shepherd is somebody that is among the sheep, somebody that smells like the sheep. A she- shepherding is not glorious. Shepherding is not powerful. In fact, if you wanted to go to the lo- lowest rung of society, you go find the lowly shepherds. Nobody wanted to be around them. Shepherd the flock of God. You be a shepherd. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion. I'm not, I'm not a Gentile who's trying to force people to do my will. But willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive an unfading crown of, crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. This is how we lead as servants and as children. Humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the Gentile form of leadership. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. I know that from experience, he would say. I was in the sifter. Resist him, firm in your faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. I'm not the only guy Satan sifted. He's sifting people all over the world. He's attacking people all over the world. He's sinking his claws into people all over the world, and even in Locust Grove, Georgia, and even here this morning. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. He's telling us his whole story in 11 verses. Somebody's like, why don't you just preach that 11 verses instead of taking us through all this stuff? This morning I proclaim to you the Son of God. He knows everything. He sees everything. He's fully aware of all that you've done. He's fully aware of all that's in your heart. He's fully aware of all that you will do in the future. He sees your pride. He sees your failure. He sees your sifting. He sees your denial. And he says, hey, I I got this. I want you. I want you. I want you close to me. I want you in love with me. I want to use every ounce of all that you have been through for my glory and for the sake and strength of of my kingdom. So what should you do? Stop and look into his eyes. Jesus stands on the shore. He's saying, well, hey, what's going on? How are you doing? What's happening inside of you? He stands on the shore while we in our contempt and bitterness and determination to quit on him and he says I'm interested in you I welcome you see and hear and feel his refusal to leave you on the outside to leave you in your shame to leave you in despair to leave you in the sifter to leave you as a denier of him listen as he reveals your heart and calls you to repent look into his eyes as he says I've got great plans for you Step over into his mercy and his grace and his restoration. And offer that to everybody else. 
Because when we love others like he loved us, on our worst day and in our worst sin, the world looks in and sees the miraculous power of the gospel that's all rooted in a value system, in a worldview, in leadership, and in relationship. That's like that of a child. That's like that of a servant. That's like that of broken people who say, Lord, I hear what you're saying, but I've got this flesh in me that's going to dominate and control. And Jesus is saying, okay, you're going to go through it and you're going to be sifted. But I've prayed for you that your faith wouldn't fail. And he's waiting for you on the shore. He says, hey, guys, come on over. I've got some fish. It's on the grill. Let's sit down and let's eat a meal together. Communion is a time where we're called to sit down and eat a meal together. Not because we're good. Not because we're sinless. Not because we're perfect. Not because we haven't denied him. Not because our hearts aren't filled with contempt and bitterness and anger. Not because we haven't quit. He invites us because of all that he's done. As you come to the table this morning, it represents, the juice represents the blood of Christ. The bread represents the body of Christ. They are pictures of the gospel. Jesus Christ came and lived the life that we could not live. He died the death that we deserved to die. And he rose victorious over an enemy that we could not defeat so that he could fill us with his spirit and he could send us out on mission for him. And that mission is not a task list of things to do, but relationships that we are to be involved in with each other for his sake and for his glory to put the heart of his kingdom on display. And so if you don't know Christ, I invite you to come today. You say, you don't know what I've done couldn't be anything as bad as what Peter did. I invite you to come today and surrender to him. If you do know Christ, but you feel like you're walking at a distance, you feel like there's no hope, I want to tell you there's hope. He has prayed for you that your faith would not fail. Come back home to him today. Father, bless us now as we consider how we lead as we consider how we serve, as we consider how we relate. Help us now as we consider our heart and our sin and we consider your great grace and the price that you have paid. The Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, not so that we can fight about who's the greatest and not so that we can put our spiritual acumen on display for the world to see how amazing we are but so that we in our brokenness and restoration can get up again and continue to go by your grace by your power by your spirit for your glory draw those to yourself that don't know you today I pray they'd see you looking over at them in the depth of their sin the moment of their denial. I pray that they would see you standing on the shore when they're trying to run from you, inquiring about what's going on in their heart and life. Help us to hear your voice calling us to you today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I invite you to come today.